Could we pray together? Father, we're so thankful that you are working in our lives, in our world. And we pray, dear Father, there will be a, not only a revival, but an awakening that will come through your people alive, living out that which we believe. Speak clearly to us today is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we go to sleep tonight, 10,000 children will starve. 6,000 children will be severely beaten by their parents, usually the father. 1,000 children will be raped. You can take your hand and turn around and point all over the world and all over America, and you will see inexplicable, unbelievable pain, sorrow, suffering, privation, emptiness, loneliness, disease, you name it. That's the world in which you and I live today. And everybody here who's lived for just a little while could stand up and give a clear word, and we'd ask the question that is an eternal question. It's called the study of a theocracy. Learn that word, theocracy. And it seeks to deal with evil and ask the question that has been asked since the dawn of time. Why does bad things happen to good people? In your life, in my life, I can name illustration after illustration when I shouted out why, I cried out why, I prayed out why, and most of us here can do the very same thing. My younger brother was taken from this earth suddenly. My oldest granddaughter in her thirties, the peak of life, radiant, gifted, called home suddenly. In the last few months, a great-grandson was born and breathed air of life in this world only for just a few minutes. And everybody here could stand up and tell story after story after story and ask that eternal question, why? Now, God exists. God is all-powerful, God is good, there's evil in the world. Does anybody see up front a problem with those four things? God exists, all-powerful, he's good, but there's evil in the world. 
something's wrong. If God is all powerful, why doesn't he just take evil and the devil and kick him out of this world? Good question, profound question. So what do we do about the problem of evil? Where did evil come from? It came from God. And we'll discover later on as to how it fits into God's eternal plan that's beyond really our scope and understanding, but we have plenty of clear words that helps us answer that question. And so we turn to Psalm chapter number 10, right up front, first verses. There it is. There it is right there for us to see. Look at it. Take your Bibles. Verse number one says it very, very clearly. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That's a part of the why, why, why question, isn't it? Lord, if I ever needed you, I need you now. Where were you? Where are you now? Bad things happen to good people. We back up and we question life. These are questions asked by atheists. These are atheistic questions that we also echo, echo as believers because it confuses most of us in this theocracy, in this theodicy. Atheism. If you've been around as we've studied Psalm, Psalm 1 through Psalm 10, we've dealt with atheism. The atheist believes there is no God. An agnostic says, I don't know whether there's a God or not. And there are basically two kinds of atheism. But let me begin by saying, where does atheism come from? Those who are philosophers and theologians and scholars, they've asked that question and they have clear answers, clear answers. Primarily, atheists come from two types of people, two types of personalities. I read probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, a book entitled The Intellectuals by Paul Johnson. And this book listed names that most all of us would know, the most influential, scholarly, philosophical, clear-thinking geniuses throughout all of history, a whole list of them. And the author gave a little biography, chapter by chapter, of all of these great, gifted, lofty scholars who were part of the intelligentsia who has ever lived. And in reading that book, I noticed one thing. They were all searching for truth in their own discipline, right? In their own area of expertise. But every single one of them had a flaw that appeared. Every single one of them wrestled with sexual challenges and were bound to basic hedonism. Every single one, all of them. And Aldous Huxley was more honest, as was Nietzsche, than the others. 
And he said very simply, I don't want there to be a God because it'll mess up with my good times and my sex life. And you find that in the study of every one of these scholars. So therefore, those who have looked at atheists down through the ages, not always, but with many, many, many things tabulated, they've grappled with sexual promiscuity. Every single one of them. Check it out. Many studies have been done. Not all, but overwhelming majority. The second thing you find in what makes an atheist is the fatherless aspect of the lives of these. Doesn't mean because you have problems with sexuality, doesn't mean if you did not have a functional father, you're necessarily an atheist, but as you put these in categories like you just studied disease. People who study disease, they look at all the characteristics of those who have this particular disease and that particular disease, and they're trying to put together a pattern. And when you put together a pattern of what makes men and women atheists, so many, many times they came up with a passive father or no father. An overwhelming number of times. So what makes up an atheist? Sexual confusion, sexual promiscuity, and the absence of a father or a father who was passive. Not always, not always, understand this, but as you look for these tendencies, these signs as to why does somebody end up not believing there's a God, there are those two parameters. Extensive studies done by sociologists have affirmed this. So what makes up an atheist? These are the two makeups of atheists. What kind of atheists are they? Basically two classifications. There are classical atheists. You've been around for a while. We've dealt with that. By the way, there can be no longer classical atheists if they have stayed up to speed. Remember why? You need to put this in your repertoire of apologetics when somebody challenges your Christianity. We've gone over it. I'll not deal with it again. You can get cassette tapes and you can get all of that. It's very clear. Read Metaxas' book. Is atheism dead? Question mark. And the answer is yes. How did atheism die? Classical atheism. It died because science killed it. That which the scientists had put down as the ultimate authority. And if you've read any apologetic books on God and on our question we're asking today, almost without exception, unless they've been published in the last four or five years, they'll say, you can't prove to me there is a God, and you can't prove to me there is not a God. And those who are in the not a God business, they give their, their evidence. Those who are in, yes, there's a God business, they give their evidence up until the last five years, and boom! Science has proven there is a big banger, there is a God, and of all things, those atheists who most honored science in their own discipline has proven that there has to be a creator, a power, the uncreated creator, the, uh, the mover, or we would say God, and you might say a big banger. And that has been conclusively proven. You don't hear much talk, those who think today, well, the atheists are out of business in their classical understanding because the Big Bang, 
All of a sudden, all this was not here forever. They dated it. Whoa. And that almost took evolutionists and blew them out of the tube. They'd been there for a long time, and now this proved it scientifically. Because of creation by design, remember, fine-tuning the universe? As you look at all of the cosmos, it comes down to the idea we've dealt with this. All of this is put together primarily, as we can see, for one reason, so there may be life. Whoa. For all the atheist ideas have been blown out of the water by science, of all things. They're God. And then finally, the clear scientific understanding now that man cannot create life. It's not even in the breath. You can't find scientists anywhere who are up to speed or even trying to create life any longer. While when Harry Truman was president, I looked back and said, man, they're on the verge of taking a petri dish and producing life. That no longer is in the vogue of, of scientists because they know it cannot be done by man. Take these three scientific absolutes and classical atheism, they have nowhere to go. Nowhere to go because they depend on science and pre-Big Bang, pre-creation, what do you have there? Nothing. How can a scientist look at nothing, examine nothing, all you have there is in the beginning God. So classical atheism is gone. Anybody who thinks it's still around, they're not to speed scientifically of all things. Maybe I told you someone has written that all of philosophy and all of atheism and all of the evolutionists have climbed the mountain of knowledge and they got to the top of the mountain and they pulled themselves up and the theologians who believe the Bible are already sitting there. That is what has happened. So classical atheism, gone. I've dealt with this pretty extensively, as good as you can in the time frame that we have, okay? But there's another kind of atheism that's very alive and well, and it's present right here amongst us. That is practical atheism. I was a practical atheist when I was a freshman at the University of Alabama. Brought up in a church, sang in the youth choir because I had a girl in there that I liked. <laughs> Ended up marrying her, by the way. Um, you know, I was an RA, royal ambassador. I was even a sunbeam. Some of you go back in Baptist life. Man, I accepted Christ at Vacation Bible School, led to Christ by the pastor's wife who taught me English in junior high school, who was brilliant, was baptized, left school, went to University of Alabama, away from everybody, everything, no influence around me, and all of a sudden, I just got caught up in being a freshman and studying and I was pre-engineering, I was in engineering, and therefore I thought I was really a scientist. And all of a sudden, I just wandered off. And that wake-up morning, morning, some of you remember, I've told this before. I walked in the room across the hall in my dorm. There was a man named Walter Carroll. He'd been in the Air Force. He was brilliant. 
And somehow we were talking and he turned to me, he said, do you believe there's a God? I said, Walter, of course I believe there's a God. He said, I don't believe there's a God and I live like there's no God and you believe there's a God and you live just like I do. I was a someone who had all the words I could tell you about John 3, 16 and quote my favorite verse, Jesus wept. I could do all those things. <laughs> but I was saying, I believe this and I know this, but I was living like this. I was a practicing atheist. You can say you believe this and live like this, Though you believe right, if you do not live on the basis of your belief, then for your living, for I mean mine, mine, and you or I, we can be practicing atheists. Therefore, there's a lot of people who go to church all the time, but their lifestyle doesn't nearly about match that which they profess and that which they know and that which they say they believe. Am I going too fast for anybody? You turn to the Bible. Before we try to address the big question, there's another question that's addressed here. And the question is, why do you stand far off God, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then all of a sudden we see the characteristics of a practicing atheist. They're listed right here. And the word wicked here could be a synonym for the word atheist, someone who may believe there's a God but doesn't live on the basis of the true and living God. And therefore, we see the characteristics of practicing atheists. Now, when I read this, don't say that's for somebody else. Look in the mirror and say, is that for me? The Bible starts and cuts a sword this way and then it cuts the sword that way, and hopefully it cuts a sword into our hearts and into our minds, okay? Let's see the characteristics of a practicing atheist. Look at it. He said, in pride, the wicked, the atheist, hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised, for the wicked boast of his heart's desire. What is the characteristic of a practicing atheist? It's pride. You hear any of that around in the political season? I want one person running for office to stand up and say, I'm not perfect, I've made some mistakes, I have fumbled and I failed, but this is where I am now. Somehow that would help me believe they are authentic. You got me? Oh, look what I've done, look what I've accomplished. No, no, pride. Pride, a characteristic of an atheist. Man, you've insulted my pride. I mean, you, you've attacked my dignity. Uh, pride. Anybody here have any trouble with pride? Don't want a show of hands. I'd have to lift mine. Another character, and the greedy man curses and spurns God. Another characteristic of a practicing atheist, very prideful, very greedy. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. His thoughts are, there is no God. See, there, there's someone living like a practicing atheist. 
I thought about greed. Greed, that's right here. We have pride, look at it. We have greed. And I went back to an old, old movie entitled Wall Street. You remember that, Gordon Gecko? How many remember that, saw that? Lift your hand, let's have a confession. I did. Oh, yeah. Remember in that movie that Gordon Gecko was a Wall Street character and he was defending a paper company who'd gone south and he makes a speech to all the employees? Listen to what he says. Greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies. Greed cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all forms, greed for life, greed for money, knowledge has marked the upward surge of, for mankind, and greed will save any corporation, but also that malfunctioning corporation called the USA. You know, you could make that speech in almost anybody's company in any particular situation, and those practicing atheists would say, that makes sense to me, right? Yep, this is how this world works. Yep. Practice atheists fill with pride. Practice atheists honor greed right here. Look at the next one, verse 5. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. For all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. It's amazing how practicing atheists generally are very successful. They prosper. Boy, they're zeroed in on success, on money, on ability, and that's what they're about. They're Johnny One Note. And so many times they're very successful. Success has great temptation. Remember, for every one person that can handle success, there are a hundred who can handle failure. Did you know that? That's actually true. They prosper. Verse 7, and his mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. Find me an atheist and you'll find someone who sort of prides themselves in taking the Lord's name in vain. Well, I was in the oil patch. Oh, that's just how we talk. Oh, everybody is profane and vulgar and trashy and demeaning like that. Man, you got to wake up to the real world, Pastor. Let me tell you something, folks. If you don't think I know the world, I know the world better than almost anybody in this room. I have on my desk every day, every morning, list of people who are going through hellish things on this earth from death the mental illness, you name it, I see it every day, fresh from all members of our congregation and that which I read. You tell me I don't know people, I don't know the world, you're sheltered up there? Yes, and a problem that you see in those who are practicing atheists is their tongue is like the term, tongue of a snake and is full with vulgarities, with accusations, with gossip, with criticism, with narrowness, yes. Another characteristic of a practicing atheist. Well, I don't do it all the time. 
Doesn't work like that, folks. Profanity. Verse 8, he sits in lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. Oh, my. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty, mighty ones. He says to himself, here it is, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. A practical atheist is slick. He's slick. He can handle most any situation. I'm going to tell you something that's 25 years old. And all the players are long since gone or forgotten and moved to the other side of the world. Two couples were in our church. By the way, I don't tell stories that are now. But two couples in our church, both of them young men, handsome, gifted, educated. Both of them were affluent and successful. But both of them were absolutely illegitimate con artists. They went to a Bible study class, look out, they're going to fleece somebody or two or three in the class before they leave and go to another class. But you would see them seated here, and when they'd come to church, so many times they'd bring influential people. I could name some they brought. You'd say, wow, they came to church from worldwide people. In business, in politics, they would come and they'd bring very influential. Say, whoa, look who they know. Then they'd con somebody else. Two men, same kind of personality, handsome, wife, had everything, big houses, all, all the stuff that we think makes a person a person. One day, I was walking into a very upper-end restaurant with a friend, and I saw these two individuals who I don't think in our church knew each other very well, but they were sitting at a table visiting, just two of them. And in my mind, I said, there is a match made in hell. And I use hell theologically, not as a cuss word. Hell is where God is not. And I saw him talking, and in my mind, I said, boy, they're fixing to do a deal together. Watch out. I promise you, ladies and gentlemen, about a year later, they were suing one another, cursing one another. They were threatening one another. And you get two crooks together, just watch out what happens. And I look back and say they went through divorces. Their children, God help them all wherever they are. Uh, I, I looked around and I realized today they are both dead. D-E-A-D, dead. They'd been dead a while, but now they've stopped breathing. And you can read this verse, can't you? You see, we'll discover there will be a day of judgment. But also, judgment is somewhat in this life. And you see the characteristics of people who are Practicing atheists, though they can profess God and teach a class or sing a solo or even probably preach a sermon, 
but they're practicing atheists. That's a list of characteristics. And we see it clearly taught in God's Word. And look at the next thing. Verse number 12. It says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? And he has said to himself, You will not require it. What's, what's, what's David saying here? In light of good things happen to bad people, right? Practicing atheists look pretty good on paper, right? But now he says, but we have a righteous judge who is God. You see, in the end, we're all going to stand before that righteous judge. And in the meantime, there's going to be some judgment now like these two wheeling, dealing, business con artists that used to walk the halls of this church. There's a judgment now. In the book of Micah, the question is asked, what does God require of you? And the answer is given, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord thy God. We do justice. We don't sit back and just watch injustice. We get involved when we can and we do justice. We speak for justice. We deal with justice. And our righteous God, there will be a payday someday. There'll be a time when justice will be established. There'll be no debate about it because God knows every single thing in every single situation from actions to motives, from, from birth all the way through. So we see in light of this atheist who is a practicing atheist who says they believe all the right thing, God will clear the deck and God is a God of justice. And David is saying, oh Lord, rise up, rise up. Evil seems to be winning the day. Where are you, oh Lord? And then we come down to verse 16. It says, the Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land, and on and on it goes. It says, the Lord honors the humble. And here we see a hint of the answer to the big question. It's tough enough, why does good things happen to bad people? And then it gets really tough, that's our Opening question, why does bad things happen to good people? Theodicy. Let me give you not a dogmatic, boy, well, I've answered that, but let me give you some clues from life and mainly from the Bible. Number one, bad things happen in our world because we live in a fallen world. Satan, powerful angel, wanted to run heaven. This is beyond our pay scale. The Bible hints at it. And Satan had a revolution, was kicked out of heaven, a relationship with God, with fallen angels. Satan had great power, great prestige. Man, 
there with God, but Satan turned and wanted to run everything and God threw him out of heaven. So therefore, there is a fallen evil influence with Satan and all the demons in life, and then Adam and Eve, they fell too. By the way, somebody might say, well, why doesn't God just make the world without evil? Why doesn't God just kill the devil and throw him out? Good question, isn't it? Why didn't God do that? He did. He did. Read Genesis 1-2. Everything's perfect, beautiful. But suddenly, evil comes, and it comes through Eve, and that's a separate story. It comes through Adam. That's a separate story. Adam is mostly responsible, and we could deal with that in a whole study of that little wonderful moment. Man decided, I want to run my life, and man, Adam and Eve, hid from God instead of being obedient and following God. And therefore, there is the fall of man. And therefore, nobody had to teach any of us how to sin, how to lie, how to deceive, how to be prideful. Man, I, I just learned, that's the easiest thing we've ever learned, isn't it? It's the fall of man. We live in a fallen world where there are hurricanes, where there are, there is evil, there is catastrophic moments that are just beyond understanding. We live in a fallen world. That's one reason. Bad things happen to good people. We're in this kind of world, in this kind of society. And in that, the second thing is, we have free will. Did you know that human beings are the only entity in creation that has free will? Nothing else has free will. Everything else is programmed. The animals are programmed instinctively. Everything else, nothing has free will, but we do. You say, man is created in the image of God. One of the primary things that tells us we're in the image of God is what? We have free will. We can choose. And if we did not have free will, there would not be a possibility of evil. Oh, therefore we'd be robots. Artificial intelligence is coming. We're just robots. God doesn't want a robot. Does any parent here want your child to be a robot? Just plug them in, mash a button, and they're perfect, they're good, they're fine. God built us for fellowship with him. We're not robots. We have free will. We can choose his way or go our own way. And this gave the possibility of evil. We live in a fallen world. We're free will. We have ability to choose. God created us like that in that sense. We are most God-like, but with great responsibility and accountability. And the third thing is, we're in training. You think we're all created for happiness? No, 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 that's not a goal. The only thing basically wrong with our founding fathers is happiness part. That's not really what we're here for. Life is not a bowl of roses, a bowl of cherries, a bed of roses. Life is more like a gymnasium. Have you noticed? It's like a gym. Get in shape, painful, or you're not in shape. A gymnasium. And you say, well, what is good? 
Goodness is not always kindness. You need surgery? <laughs> That's not kind. Been to the dentist? That's not kind. And if we want everything to be wonderful in this life, and you just throw free will out, and you wake up one day and discover, you know, you know, because we make mistakes, we have forgiveness. We have mercy. And sometimes parents are not kind to their children. They love their children, and therefore their children would not see what they do to discipline them as kindness. Otherwise, it'd be like your parents always doing your homework. You won't learn anything. It is through suffering and pain and sorrow sometimes that you and I learn our best lessons. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? You want to read about suffering? Read the book of Job in a modern translation or any translation. Read it slowly and intelligently, maybe with a commentary to help you walk through it, and you see what happened. Job was a tremendous guy, God-fearing, worshiping, prosperous, prestige, applaud. Job had everything in that day. By the way, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Did you know that? First oldest book. Job was on top of the world. You couldn't name anything he didn't have. Somehow he got in, he got in the middle of a conversation between God and Satan, and that's another story. But then as quick as zigzag lightning, Job lost his family, his children, bang, bang, taken from this earth. Bang, bang, bang. He lost his land, his flocks, his herd. He lost everything he had, and he was a wealthy person. And then, all of a sudden, then he got deathly ill with boils and uh, stinching disease. We don't know exactly what it was, but he was totally thrown away on an ash heap. You couldn't be around him. He became totally enmeshed in the filth of his disease. Only thing left was his wife, and she said, Job, I don't know what you've done, but curse God and die. And we talk about the patience of Job. If you talk about the patience of Job biblically, you haven't read more than the first three chapters. Beginning with chapter four, he was about as vicious and impatient as you and I would be. So don't give me that line. Then you got what? All the way to verse 42, the end of the chapter, from three plus, he was like you and I would be. Lost his family, lost everything he had. Critically, desperately ill with boils and bleeding and pus with a stench about it until they threw him away on a trash heap to live in the middle of his own waste and his own disease. And then three big-time friends come to see him. Boy, that was good. He was so sick when they got there, they didn't say anything to him for seven days. Just silence. Just silence. And then they begin to speak to him as if they were God. Job, you've done some horrible thing. Job, you've conned somebody. Job, you have sexually molested somebody. Job, and they charge him with every kind of malady and sin that you could imagine in this world. Job answered them as best he could. 
And he just said, innocent, 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 innocent. And in all this, I want you to notice one thing. Those three friends talked about God to Job. Job talked to God. Read it, read it. And finally, Job is angry at God. God, what did I do? I'm a good person. Here's all the evidence of it. You know that, God. What did I do to deserve all this? You ever felt like that? Ever felt like that? Then finally, Job really gets to the end of himself. He says, God, I want to get you in a court of law. How about that? I know you're the judge, but we need to get a mediator between you and myself. And then Job says, who in the world can mediate between a human being and God? <laughs> Where is somebody who can be neutral in that situation, folks? And Job says, God, why don't you show up? Because in all of this, God had been silent, just like we read in the scripture. Remember, where are you, God? All the trouble breaks out. Where are you, God? And finally, God speaks. Whew. You got to read those three chapters almost there, what God says to Job. He said, Job, let me ask you some questions. And boy, what questions? He starts off, Job, where were you when I created this world, when I put the stars in where were you when I made this animal? Where were you? And God just asked Job's questions that deals all with creation and all with life, chapter after chapter, verse after verse. When God gets through, <laughs> paraphrase, young paraphrase here, Job says, God, I didn't know who I was messing with. I forgot who you are and what you've done. And Job says, I repent in dust and ashes and shame. A functional, practical atheist was Job. See it? Pride and some of the rest of it. When you and I See, bad things happen to Do we not realize that sometimes God can turn evil and bad things in your life and my life and turn them around and they can become good, beneficial things? God knows judo, ladies and gentlemen. Look at the cross. The cross is God's judo. Some of you don't know the principle of judo. Judo is that you use the other person's strength against them and you win. That's the whole genius behind that particular martial arts discipline. This is what God did. The cross is God's judo. Man, the devil said, now I've killed God, I've killed the divine, I've killed on his son, I have won. But God took the cross in Jesus Christ and turned it around and the cross became the answer and the forgiveness of sin and a prelude to the resurrection and eternal life. God can take bad stuff and turn it around. And that's his amazing judo as he's trying to build you and myself in the gymnasium of life into what he wants us to be and what he wants us to do and how he wants us to live. Oh, 
the glory and the majesty of his name, the, the magnificence of his operations in life. You see, God wants to make, before we graduate on this earth, every one of us, everybody, he wants to make us real, R-E-A-L. And it takes suffering to make us real. It takes pain to make us real. But the good thing about it in making us real, I thought about the Velveteen Rabbit. The Velveteen Rabbit story is this year a hundred years old. I'll give you a little essence of it. I listened to all of it yesterday and, and, and I wept because I saw the biblical theology in it, but that's another story. But the Velveteen Rabbit is the story of how the Velveteen Rabbit became real. And the, the skin horse, older than the Velveteen Rabbit, talks to the rabbit and says, you become. It takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges. And so we, we see, I think we've got it on the screen here, the Velveteen Rabbit, do we not? Maybe not. Maybe not. Anyway, he says it takes a long time to become real. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time the skin horse says to the Velveteen Rabbit that you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby, but these things doesn't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand the process of being real. It takes some growing up and some pain in the process and the ultimate picture. Hey, we don't have to go far. It says it very, very clearly. Revelation. For you men, it's the last book in the Bible. <laughs> Verse 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. For I saw the holy city, now Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things are passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 